Welcome to the Strip Till Farmer Podcast, brought to you by the Pluribus Light from Dawn Equipment. I'm Michaela Pauchner, Technology Editor at Strip Till Farmer. In today's episode of the podcast, you'll meet the 2022 Strip Till Innovator Award winner, Brian Ryberg, who farms 5,200 acres in Buffalo Lake, Minnesota. Let's jump right into the conversation. Brian Ryberg, Buffalo Lake, Minnesota. So we're in the very corner of Sibley County. So we farm in four counties, but they're just the way they sit, they're not very far apart. Started farming in 1986 with my dad, uh, farmed in partnership with my parents for 10 years until they retired. And so we formed Ryberg Farms Inc. at the time, my wife and I, and uh, kind of expanded from there. We have uh, four full-time employees raise corn, soybeans, and sugar beets. And we transitioned our farm in 2014 to strip till, and about that time started to use cover crops as well. So been a real learning experience, but been been very good. Good. Uh, how many acres are you farming, and what are your soils like here? Yeah, so we have uh, heavy clay soils, very good soil, very good topsoil, high organic matters. So we farm about 5,200 acres, and then we custom farm about another thousand to fifteen hundred depending on the practice whether it's spring planting or fall harvest and and a lot of that is also done in strip till or or conservation methods as well okay what drove your decision to try strip till well we were coming off of really high corn markets and so at that time we had been raising all corn and our sugar beets no soybeans because the corn market was so good that just told us that was a better return and so we were spending a lot of time thinking we had to get the soil black to raise corn on corn. And so we we're doing multiple passes of heavy tillage in the fall and, and coming back and having to do spring tillage to level that out and plant the corn. And at that same time, I tell the story, we had an excavator at the time when we'd taken down a grove on a farm we had rented just to try to square it up the farm it easier. And there was some pasture land then that we broke up. So and that would have been like 2013. So come June of that year, I'm starting to look at the crop and the corn in this pasture land was greener and taller than it was in our conventionally tilled ground that had been there forever. And I'm starting to question what we're doing and so started to ask some agronomists and had them come look and started to think about our soils and what we were doing to soil structure and whatnot. And so started to think about, we got to do something different. This isn't sustainable. And at the same time, the corn market's dropping, so we know we got to cut back our costs. And so really kind of fell onto the strip till thing, more of a cost measure, cost savings measure than anything else, and didn't recognize all the soil benefits, soil health things that were going to come along with that, all like agronomy things. Um, so it just kind of fell into place. We, couldn't, we knew we couldn't, and our climate didn't feel comfortable we could go to no-till. Um, just because we're cold in the spring. So we thought this was kind of a happy medium and like the idea we could do our fertilizer placement more of in a band situation and keep it right in the root zone. Um, so two of my guys that have been with me for a long time, I treat them like partners in there. I mean, this is a team approach and everything we do. And so we start researching about this strip till thing and we went to the strip till conference and um, met some people and started asking a lot of questions and decided that's what we wanted to do. So by 14, we were ready to take the leap and actually demoed one in fall of 13 then. 
And so I had a few acres that were in that in 14. And by the fall of 14, we knew this is the way we wanted to go. And so we jumped in whole hog. So Wow. Yeah. So following the fall of 2014, you started strip tilling all of the acres that you were yeah. doing? Okay. Yep. Today we, we strip till probably 80 to 90% of what we do. And the rest is just a vertical till. So very minimal till to plant soybeans into. So we don't necessarily strip for soybeans, but one method or another is, is much more of a conservation type practice than the heavy tillage that most everybody else in our area does or that we used to do. So most people around here are doing heavy conventional tillage. Correct. Um, what do they think about you doing strip till? I tell the story. I had a friend of mine, older guy, but they've been a very aggressive and progressive family in the area, big farmers. And when he first heard what we were going to do and that we had this strip till machine, he drove on the yard and he said, this is not going to work. Don't even try it. <laughs> and of course, the more he talked, the more I wanted to prove him wrong. And he couldn't give me any reasons that it wasn't going to work because I'd always have a comeback for him. And, uh, and so there was a lot of naysayers. And, and my dad was a coffee shop guy, so he would go listen to all the negativity about what these crazy guys are doing south of town. And, <laughs> And he'd kind of take those people on and I'd have to tell him at some point that I just don't want to hear it anymore. We, we think we're doing the right thing and it's working. And, um, and he was always an innovator, so he was supporting us, but he, he was kind of mining the battlefield for the people that were not uh, thinking we're doing the right thing. But I think we've gained a lot of respect in what we're doing. We've done some custom work for other people that want to try it. And... We've had agronomy people call me and tell me how nice our crop looks or how much greener the corn looks or that type of thing. Um, had landowners that have recognized what we're doing and, and have called and we've been able to expand because of that. They want people like to practice things like we're doing. Um, so it's really been a, a big plus for us and a big advantage. So we're enjoying that. Yeah, for sure. Talking about the equipment that you're using, what are you using right now for your strip-toe rig and then your planter as well? So we purchased a soil warrior at the time. So one of the first drawbacks we found out is that there wasn't many companies that made equipment for 22 inch rows and sugar beets for whatever reason historically has always been raised on 22 inch rows. And so that's where, why we were there. Um, and so there, there was only a few companies that did. Uh, everything we researched said Soil Warrior was kind of the Cadillac and their price tag was also that way. But they did make a 22 inch machine and they're 75 miles away from us. So we felt that was a safe bet. If we're gonna commit to this thing 100%, we wanna work with the best equipment and good people and have them close by. So um that's been a great experience we've gotten along very well with the equipment we've gotten to be really good friends with a lot of the people down there and so if we have issues they are quick to address it or they help us through settings and whatever so that's kind of the the simple piece we have the original machine we bought and we've made some upgrades to it but um, as far as our planters they're just conventional planters so we don't freshen strips in the spring we just go right in and plant right into them and uh you know, we really don't have anything different on our planters than most people do. Early on, we saved some fields for the spring just to try it, and it worked fine. Um, I just didn't like the idea of this big, heavy machine out there in the spring for compaction reasons and whatnot, although we never saw any issues with that. 
So it's nice to know if we can't get it done in the fall, we can fall back to the spring time. But um, we've just, my nephew, Chris is our techie guy and he runs the strip tool machine. And so that's his baby in the fall. He just, <laughs> he's committed to doing that. And he just chases the combine and gets the strips done. I know you said it's the 22 inch spacing on the strip tool machine. Do you have shanks on that or what do you put on there? Yeah, we're just a triple coulter. So there's a lead coulter up front and then two offsetting wavy coulters in the back. So we're tilling eight inch to 10 inch strip depending on soils and uh, running four to six inches deep at the most. How many rows does it have and what are you putting down in the strip when you're doing a fall strip tilling? Yep. So we're a 24 row, 22 inch, so it's 44 feet wide. Um, they make a 60 footer, so we're getting up there in size. But And so it's twin bin, so we do only our P and K and some micros in the, in the fall. We don't do any nitrogen in the fall. Part of that was I was in the CSP program, and that was one of the requirements that I signed up for. But we also believe in that just for fear of losing that nitrogen through leaching or whatever throughout the year. So we kind of spoon feed our nitrogen in the spring with planter and a side dress pass and whatnot. So it's just, just the P and K in the fall, basically. Okay. And what are the rates of P and K that you're using? You know, we do a lot of variable rate stuff, just depending on um, soil samples. We're pretty aggressive on, on that. So we're narrowing up. We were at 4.4 uh, acre grids. We're going to two and a half. So we're trying to kind of farm by the foot, so to say, a little closer. Um, and so we'll run all oh, from 100 to 450 pounds of product through those. So, And then what rates of N are you using for the corn and soybeans and sugar beets? So corn and corn, we're running about 200 pounds, but we put about um, basically thirds, a third of that on with the planter. A third, we, we use 32% nitrogen as a carrier for our weed and feed over the top as we spray our herbicide on. And then the last third gets to be a side dress. Um, and then uh, corn soybeans is about 160 pounds we're able to get by with and similar on corn on sugar beet ground. And when you're trying to do that, the farming by the foot mentality, what are some of the things you have to consider when you're out there um, making the strips and then planting? Well, it's really always driven by the soil test. And so, um, you know, grid testing, every two and a half acre grid might have a, you know, different pH, different organic matter. Um, we work with an agronomist that helps put those maps together for us, our variable rate maps, and then Chris plugs them into the system as he's doing it. But just trying to get more balanced fertility out there. We've rented land from like a livestock producer all the manure went right off the edge of the place. And so that end of the field tends to be higher in, in fertility because of the manure for many years versus the far end of the field that needs it. And so as we grid tested, we recognized a lot of those imbalances and we're able to kind of level those out now through the years. And so that's where we really find value in the grids. Yeah, for sure. You're not putting nutrients where they don't need to be. And right. Then saving money on the inputs themselves. Yeah, yeah. Right now with high fertility costs, why any time you can be more efficient with that is really a savings in the end. So 
And I know that's a, a big thing with the environmental benefits of strip till as well. And what are some of those benefits that you've seen, Ben? Yeah, so our, our focus with the strip is to keep all our fertility as close to the root zone as possible. So um, obviously start out with the strips, we're putting that all right in that uh, strip or in the root zone under the plants as we plant. Um, we've changed our side dress rig to a wide drop system. So we're putting the nitrogen right next to the row versus over here in the middle and hope that the roots get there. Just everything we do, even some fungicides on sugar beets, we're banding right over the row. We're just trying to target right where the roots are and, and try to be the most efficient we can with the fertility and any treatments that we do. What are some of the specific challenges and considerations for sugar beets and strip till? So the strip till thing in 22 inch rows, the first thing we really recognized we had to be really good at was residue management. So um, corn stalks trying to fit between a 22 inch triple coulter machine to flow through and not plug. So we we went away from a chopping corn head. We went to calmer stock rolls on a corn head. So we size that residue and we drop it straight down. So that as the corn stock stands there, if it's chopped off, the residue kind of lays right along both sides of that. Mm. And so over here in the middle where we're gonna make our strip is actually fairly black already. With the chopping corn head, it's a lawnmower blade and it throws everything and kind of creates a mat of residue. So that really helped us out. And then the next thing we did, we went to, so we, we harvest the corn, then we run a vertical till machine through to help size that a little better and to flatten the corn stalks. Because um, early on, the other issues we had is we run a big combine with big fat tires on. And so we would drive down some of the rows and the other rows that weren't driven on stay standing. Well, we'd go in there and we'd make our strips. And then if the wind blew, the standing stalks would catch all that residue, kind of mm -hmm. like a snow fence. And they'd cover up our strips. And so then they wouldn't dry out or warm up in the spring. So by making this vertical till pass, we kind of make the whole field the same. And, and we flatten out all those corn stalks so it's, the field is uniform. And then we make our strips and we don't have that issue anymore. Um, so that's kind of the big key. And so the sugar beets you want, just like corn and corn, you'd want the blackest strip you can get so it warms up and collects the heat and sunlight in the spring to get that, that plant off to a quick start. But uh, other than that, um, it's been fine. I, I had some uh, stomach pains and try to get your mind around doing the right thing. The very first years I, I was planting sugar beets late one night and you'd look out to the side and you'd see all this cornstalk residue and think, what am I doing? This is crazy. <laughs> and I turn around and look behind me and I'm planting beets in this nice black strip. And I had to tell myself, well, the sugar beet plant knows it's in a black strip. It doesn't care what's over here next to the row. And uh, it's worked out just fine. Great. How many of your acres are sugar beets this year? So this year we have 700 and 25 acres of beets. Okay. Yeah. So we tend to be heavy on corn and soybeans kind of fill in the gap between the, the beets. And so I think this year we're almost 3,000 acres of corn and 
1,500 acres of soybeans and seven something of beets. How do you decide what acres you're doing the sugar beets planting on? So we're on a five-year rotation. Um, we try to put our sugar beets on uh, really well-tiled land. They just do better if they on good pattern tiled ground. So we have a few farms that we won't raise beets on just because they're water challenged. Um, and so that we kind of have a, kind of just sit down and, and lay out our fields and decide, okay, this year, these fields are gonna get sugar beets and next year we're gonna shift them over here and so on. And so as we build our chemical plans, because uh, sugar beets are very sensitive to some chemicals, so you have to watch what you use because some will carry over. They don't affect maybe soybeans or corn, but they could affect sugar beets. So we're very cautious about the chemistry we use. And, and we use that on all our acres, so we don't have to worry about, okay, if we switch this farm, shoot, we use that chemical on there, we can't do that. So we're very consistent throughout our chemistry program. but. So we just kind of lay it out that way and then um, low pH farms, we, we put lime on to raise the pH because sugar beets do better on that. So we try to target that two years ahead of when we're going to have beets and you just kind of have to get in that thought process to prepare for that crop to give it the best chance to succeed. When in the year are you applying the lime and how much lime do you apply? So generally we stockpile it um, ahead of fall and then they'll apply it after the crop is off. So we have a co-op come in and as a oh, lime spreader sure. and they spread it. And we're doing about three tons to the acre. But we also do some variable rate stuff there too. And so it could be from one ton to five ton, depending on the pH of those grids as to how much we put on. And they're able to do that with their spreaders. Before we continue this conversation, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, the Pluribus Light from Dawn Equipment. Dawn is bringing today's innovative farmers a new strip-till product from the regenerative ag-focused underground agriculture brand. The Pluribus Light is priced like a strip freshener, but it offers the features and performance to be used in the fall or spring as a primary strip-tiller or strip freshener. It's the perfect complement to a cover crop system that just needs a little blacker strip. Check out the Pluribus site at dawnequipment.com. Now let's get back to the conversation. So the co-op does the lime. Do you bring in anyone else to do any other um, application? No, so that was a little bit of a fear of going to strip till because all of a sudden we're gonna do our own fertility and we always just call the co-op and say, you know, that field's harvested, go spread it. So there's a little bit of a learning curve, but we've done all our own spraying forever. And so it basically, it's the same thing. You, you gotta have a tender truck there that supplies the strip till machine with fertilizer. And Chris is, does a great job and he knows how to run the system to punch in the rate CNEs or to load up the variable rate map. And we just do it. So we don't really hire any outside services for anything anymore. There's times we get caught in weather, we might have to hire an airplane to do some spraying or something like oh, that. Sure. But that's pretty rare. I mean, pretty low percentage. So basically everything is in-house. How do you split up all the work that needs to be done among the five of you? So we kind of specialize and we just tend to continue doing that. So I'm kind of the spray guy in the, in the spring. 
Chris and Jason that have been with me the longest each run a planner. So we have a 24-row planner and a 36-row planner. They run planners, and then uh, I'm putting on pre-emerge chemical behind them. And then our other two guys are kind of the tender guys. So they keep um, seed and chemical to both of us, or all three of us, to keep us going. And then uh, as we go throughout the year, you know, we run two sprayers. So two of us will be running sprayers. And um, Jason's right now side dressing nitrogen on corn. That's kind of his baby. Um, and again, the other guys kind of keep tending to us and they haul grain and do whatever they can fill in wherever. And then as we get to fall, two of the guys run combines and one runs a grain cart and then I'm the sugar beet guy. So I run the sugar beet harvester and, and Derek that works with us runs the topper. And then we bring in some part-time people as well. We have to have a lot more people and truck drivers for fall, but we just kind of gravitated to each guy kind of running one certain piece of equipment and just being really good at it and it seems to work out so yeah that seems like a good strategy yeah i mean it, yet we we can always have somebody else jump in at times if needed but uh, we tend to just kind of keep our own rig and keep that going so you mentioned that you're using cover crops as well and that started with strip till uh what are you using for your cover crops so in 2013 14 right in there we were I was always bothered by um, our sugar beet ground after harvest has no residue. It's just black soil and it's pretty fine soil because it gets through the harvesting process and so on. It, it just gets really fine and, and tends to blow pretty easily. And we'd gone through a bunch of open winters where we just weren't getting any snowpack and so the winds would come up and that dirt would blow and it would fill road ditches and yeah, I mean that's still a problem today but it's it's kind of a black eye for a sugar beet producer because it's coming from their farms normally. So we just started thinking if we can seed something right after harvest, you know, maybe there's a chance we could get it to grow before it freezes up and have some cover there to try to maintain that soil. Um, so we started with cereal rye, just simple. We hired, or we, we got a pull type spreader from the co-op as soon as that field was harvested. We had a tractor on the spreader, we'd spread it and we just used the field cultivator at the time and and scratch over it. And the first few years we actually had really good growth. We had some warm falls and thought, well, this is easy. This is gonna be great. <laughs> and it worked really well. And and cereal rye will overwinter and of course take off and grow again in the spring. And they just we thought this was very simple. Well, since then we've had very few warm falls to allow that to happen. It's always there and I think they tell me it germinates at 37 degrees or something in the spring. So about the time there's any snow that melts, it's greening up and it's coming and it grows rapidly in the spring. So that's been kind of our go-to cover crop. For a number of years we experimented and we tried to do some interseeding in our corn while we side dressed. Mm -hmm. We had a box on a side dress bar so we could do that in one pass. And we always got it established and, and we played around with different mixes and blends of different cover caps. But in 22 inch rows, we tend to get a really tight canopy like through August. And so it wouldn't get any sunlight. And so by harvest, it would die. There was nothing there. Very few falls did we have anything green that was would even show up in the corn anymore. So, you know, our budget was $15, $16 an acre. And if you're not getting any return on that, it just, 
didn't pay to do that anymore. So our focus now has been just trying to get that CRI on in the fall and we're trying to do it on corn stalks that are going to soybeans. So we had that same box that was on our side dress bar. We could move to our vertical till piece so we could do that in the fall in one pass. Um, and, but it's a small box and we just couldn't, we struggled to get enough acres through it and it would take two people to load it and it was kind of cumbersome. So this past year, after winning the Conservation Legacy Award, we got a grant and we purchased a terrigator, an older terrigator with just a spreader box on. So our goal this fall is just to go out and spread several farms ahead of the guy running the vertical till. And so we're not holding him up. He can get a lot of acres done. We can hopefully get more acres covered in the fall and um, have a larger percentage of our farm under cover crops. We'll so, see how that plays out. Yeah, so this fall it'll be more acres than just the sugar beets that are yeah. covered. We've always done all our sugar beet acres. And now as we, we like the planting soybeans green into that standing rye in the spring. And so our focus is try to get more acres done there. Um, so yeah, hopefully we can get all that done this fall. Yeah, hopefully. So we'll see how that turns out. But, yes. Uh, yeah, it was nice to get the grant to kind of help fund that. And it was through the Walton Family Foundation as part of the American Soybean Association. So it was a pretty cool deal. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, it'll be a yeah. nice piece of equipment <laughs> to learn how to run, but I don't think that'll be too bad. So we're actually going to do, uh, we help out a guy that raises a lot of peas, canning crops in the summer. And uh, so we're going to play around on his acres to make sure this all works before fall to because he always puts a cover crop on. Oh, sure. So I said, hey, I'll come do a couple of farms for you just to get the bugs out of this thing. And so we should be ready to go by fall. Nice. Yeah. How many pounds of cereal rye do you typically put on your acres? Um, we're typically 45 to 50 pounds to the acre. Um, we might go a little heavier than that on the, that seems to be enough on the black sugar beet ground. On the corn stalks, you get some tied up in the residues, so we may mm -hmm. have to go up to 60 pounds or something like that. But yeah, it, uh, this year where we had it on sugar beet ground, and then we stripped that in the fall for corn. Well, with a later fall plant or later spring planting, that rye just kept growing and growing. So it got a little woolly on me, but oh. uh, <laughs> we got it terminated and the corn looks great. And, it was a little nerve-wracking, though, thinking, we got to get out there and get this killed off. So, right. But it all worked out fine. Good. And then how are you terminating it, typically? Just with Roundup. Yeah. Okay. Very easy to kill, and within a week, it's it's pretty much brown. And it's nice that, you know, if you get, do get some growth to it, it just kind of lays down and kind of shields the soil, so it prevents more weeds from coming up. Um, you know, we hit these 90 degree days that sounds like coming up this weekend. It'll kind of help insulate that. And, you know, corn plant tends to shut down. They tell me at 95 degree weather or something mm -hmm. like that. So if we can maintain that soil temperature and insulate a little bit, maybe we got a better chance to keep that corn growing and right. kind of move along. So, yeah, lots of good benefits that way. Yeah, for sure. Are there any specific things you have to consider with using cover crops in a strip till system? No, not really. We've uh, we've tried about everything and it's worked. One of the things that I would be leery of 
if there was a scenario where you planted um, radishes or um, turnips or something early and you waited till fall to strip it, you know, if you have those tubers that are of good size, mm -hmm. could create problems for the strip till machine and trying to get through that. But yeah, otherwise we just really haven't had much issue with anything and they seem to kind of work nicely together. I mean, it's great to have that cover crop growing up between the strips to kind of keep uh, from wind erosion and water erosion, that type thing. But yet have that black strip to plant into. Yeah, works out well. Good. I've heard from a couple of strip tillers who just, they say they can't find a way to make cover crops work with their strip till system. Knowing that you can do it up here and you're colder than a lot of people who are using strip till in the Corn Belt states. Um, that should be, I think, some encouragement for people to give it a try. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously, I think if you were in northern Minnesota, it's, you know, your odds are against you more so than where we are. But, you know, in a perfect world, it would be nice to have those warm falls to get something going for winter. But that's just our geography and part of what we got to face. So, and we're going to play around this fall and, and mix some oats with the cereal rye. Maybe the oats would get up going a little faster in the fall. I don't know. We're going to play with that just to get something growing ahead of the, the winter time in case we have open winters again, because it's no fun seeing your dirt moving to the neighbors. Yeah. We're just trying to prevent that. So, and in our, I'm on the sugar beet board and I've been on there now for seven years almost. And it's always been kind of a black eye for the sugar beet grower to have this dirt moving. And so when I came on, that was kind of one of my things is to help promote this and People just kind of laughed at me and oh. and now they're like, boy, we really need to do something here. This is getting to be a problem. <laughs> so it's nice to see people get a little more educated and, and aware of something they can change, which would be a great thing and, and just, uh, just better stewardship, you know, try to keep the soil where it belongs. Mm -hmm. What are some of the benefits for you to be on the sugar beet board and do these events that get the word out about what you're doing? I was told we were the first ones in the state of Minnesota to strip till sugar beets. So um, there's a few more now that have, have picked my brain and, and I'm certainly willing to mentor anybody to answer questions and help them from failing because, you know, there's too many people that We'll try something and if it doesn't work perfectly the first time they just scrap it and they you know so i don't want that to happen to somebody because i really believe this is a good system um sugar beets are very susceptible to wind in the spring and can blow out causing you to have to replant so whether you use a cover crop or a nurse crop in the spring or leave residue on the field to help that wind erosion it's going to help the crop succeed because you're not being susceptible to, to having it blow out. So as I've been on our board from our local co-op, um, there's a few other guys now that are strip tilling beets that I've helped and, uh, and we bounce ideas back and forth. So they help me too. And then I'm also on national American sugar beet growers association board. And so there's, People in Colorado or Idaho that have strip tilled for years. It's just a normal practice for them. So I've learned from them and and share with others as well. And, and there are several people now up through the Red River Valley that are trying strip till. 
because they really have an erosion problem, wind erosion problem. So you kind of build your network of people and we tend to all share ideas and help each other. In the conventional farming world, you tend to be all in competition with each other. Oh, okay. So you don't want to tell your secrets. Where I found uh, in any of these conservation type things, um, it just seems to be more sharing going on and, and it's great. So I, you get to be friends with a lot of people and, and uh, they're help, willing to help us. And, and I mean, I had a phone call this spring from a guy that's going to plant corn in the cereal rye. He's up in the valley. And, uh, you know, is this going to work? And yeah, it's going to work, you know, do this, <laughs> this, and this. And, and I, I've done the same thing. I've called somebody else if we're going to try something new. And you think this is going to work? And so it's, you kind of create your own family of, of people and it's, it's been great. So I'm always willing to share and help people as much as I can. So I think that's one of the things I think is really great about our events too, is that we get so many people like you who are willing to share what they're doing yeah. instead of like, oh no, that's mine. Like, no, they, everybody wants everybody else to succeed because it's good for right. all of us. Yeah. Yeah. If we truly want to see these practices spread, I think, you know, it, it's up to us to help spread the news, share the message and help everybody along. I mean, I, I've got local people that are just trying to do the cover crop thing for erosion. I mean, they're still going to do their full scale tillage and all that, but they're just starting to think about trying to keep the soil where it is. And, and so that's a step in the right direction. And the same guy that told me what we're going to try and do was never going to work. He's done some cover crop stuff <laughs> after sugar beets. And um, so it, it's, you know, you, you try to get the ball rolling and try to spread that as far as you can, but it's, it's still pretty slow at this point. But I think uh, the government programs are starting to tend to, I don't want to say force people into more conservation methods, but certainly willing to supposedly help um, fund some of that or finance mm -hmm. some of that. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a big plus. So we're gaining traction, but maybe not as fast as we'd like to see. Sure. So what do you think is something that you know now that you wish you knew when you were first starting to strip till? I think our biggest struggle was the residue side and nobody had ever really talked about that because there isn't many in narrow rows. So if you're in 30 inch rows, you have more wiggle room, you have more room for residue to flow through, that type of thing. So I think that's part of the message I try to share with somebody else to say, hey, wait a minute, you maybe need to consider doing this before you strip so you don't have a problem. The thing we're trying to learn now is with high fertility costs, is there cover crops that can give us some type of fertility benefit how do you measure that? How are we sure that we're not going to cut ourselves short? How do we soil test to make sure we're not going backwards? You know, we've cut our P and K rates maybe 75% of a total just because we're being more efficient with it. But we're also watching our grid testing to make sure we're not going downhill. You know, we're not burning up those nutrients and, and not replacing them. So that's still a learning process. And right now with high grain prices and, and high fertilizer, you don't want to cut yourself short and give up 
the chance to still produce a really good crop to take advantage of the market. So you got to be very cautious about that yet. Right. Yeah. That's amazing, <clears throat> though, that you've been able to cut your inputs. And it makes sense. I mean, I remember somebody showing me on a PowerPoint, you know, if you broadcast 300 pounds of fertilizer over the whole field, this is what the scatter map looks like. If you put half of that, the 150 pounds, into that 8 to 10 inch strip, holy cow, there's a very high concentration of fertility. So it stands to reason you should be able to lower your use rate because it's all available to the root system versus spread all over the field. So I think it makes sense, but we keep watching that. And yeah. we, we, I mean, we produce really good crops and we'll compete with the conventional guys with no problem. And so it must be working. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> what are your typical yields for corn, soybeans, and sugar beets? Um, last few years, we've raised really good corn. I think probably a five-year average, we'd be over 200 bushel. Um, we've had some fields over 250. Soybeans, as we gravitated to strip till and less tillage, our yields seem to keep climbing. And so there again, our five-year average is probably 62 to 65 bushel beans. The sugar beets were probably, you know, our co-op average, I think, is about 28 ton, and, and we're probably right in there, 28, 29. We've probably seen a yield bump in what we're doing on corn and soybeans, but the sugar beets, I can't say we've seen that yet. We, we can maintain, and we produce the same tons and the same sugar, but um, I, I'm not going to brag that we're going to do better than the conventional guy. So... Yeah, but still you're doing the same with last in oh, terms yeah. of the inputs. So right there is... Yeah, it's a margin at the end yeah, where you right. see it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, when we were doing our corn on corn back before we transitioned, we were burning about um, three and a half to four gallons of fuel per acre just doing fall tillage. Today, that... Soil Warrior doing basically our fall tillage, our fertilizer application, and our spring tillage because we don't, it leaves it so nice we don't have to come back in in the spring. We're burning 0.6 to 0.8 gallons. Wow. When fuel was a buck and a quarter, people didn't think that was a really big deal, but I've had people confront me now and say, holy cow, you're saving a lot of money <laughs> yeah. at $5 fuel. And we are. I mean, I we Planted 6,500 acres this spring, and in, in a, I got a transport load of fuel in, which is 7,300 gallons, and we're still pulling out of the same tank. And I can tell you, a conventional guy would be far more than that. Yeah, right. So, and I always kind of get a kick out of that as I, especially in the fall, because that's a heavy fuel use time. I had one. A picture in my head that'll be there forever and I should have taken it with my phone but one of the big guys in our area has got his huge four-wheel drive with his huge dripper behind with a pickup behind with a thousand gallon fuel tank pulled behind that is this train <laughs> going down the road and I'm like how oh, we just don't have to haul the fuel and and deal with all that and so it's so nice it yeah just really simplified things for us you know in the spring we all we have to do is focus to keep those planters going and we don't have 
We don't dig up rocks anymore. So we don't have to have a rock picker out there first. We don't have to have multiple field cultivators with guys driving them. And it's just, just keep the planters going. And we didn't really realize how nice that was gonna be at first. So worked out well. Thanks to Brian Ryberg for today's conversation. You'll find a transcript of today's episode and our featured series about Brian and his operation in the link for this episode at striptillfarmer.com slash podcasts. And many thanks to the Pluribus Light from Dawn Equipment for helping to make this Strip Till podcast series possible. From all of us here at Strip Till Farmer, I'm Michaela Faulkner. Thanks for listening.